Before we get into the show, a quick message from Physician Financial Services, a business widely recognized in the physician community for disability insurance. Lawrence B. Keller, CFP, has been in the insurance and financial services industry since 1990. Unlike medicine, which has a standardized path that physicians must take to gain the education, training, and experience requirements necessary to obtain board certification, the insurance and financial services industry does not. While he might not be a doctor's first phone call regarding their insurance need, he is often their last. Find Larry at drpodcastnetwork.com slash Larry Keller, that's spelled L-A-R-R-Y-K-E-L-L-E-R, or at the link in the description of this show. Welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. I'm your host, Jeff Siegel, CEO and founder of Medical Justice. We are rejoined today with Rick Collins. Rick Collins was with us before, and he's been gracious enough to return. So who is Rick Collins? He's a New York lawyer and a former prosecutor who built a nationwide practice in the area of health, wellness, and fitness. He's a partner in the law firm of Collins Gann, McClowski, and Barry, and he has defended countless defendants as well as corporate entities against investigations, administrative or disciplinary hearings, as well as criminal prosecutions alleging unlawful marketing, distribution or prescription of anabolic steroids, human growth hormone, or non-compliant dietary supplements. And we will be talking today about human growth hormone. And he's internationally recognized as the legal authority in the field of testosterone and other anabolic steroids, as well as performance-enhancing substances. And his resume is longer than a telephone book, if you can remember what a telephone book is for those of you who are out there. (laughs) And um, he can be found at his website, steroidlaw.com. You must have picked that up early before other people uh, started jumping (laughs) on it. Welcome, Rick. Thanks for rejoining us today. Thank you for having me back, Jeff. It's it's a pleasure for sure. And yes, I did pick that that website up many, many years ago, and it's developed probably in the late 90s because I've been doing this this kind of practice involving hormones and banned substances uh, since since the mid 90s i would say all right so let's just by way of background you were a bodybuilder probably still are and have been very you've been very much focused on performance enhancing drugs in the last podcast we talked about how the regulatory world took this over and it was primarily a sports problem that got the federal government and I guess later the state governments involved. I wanted to make sure that we had a nice level playing field so that Ben Johnson couldn't beat Carl Lewis uh, going forward. (laughs) Interestingly enough, I guess Carl Lewis had his own issues with either ephedrine or Sudafed uh, at some Mm. point uh, down the road, but that's probably a story for another day. But let's Let's take a detour. Let's let's talk about yet another performance enhancing compound, human growth hormone. So human growth hormone is a peptide. And mm-hmm. many, many years ago, it was like gold. You needed a number of, I mean, many pituitary uh, or many pituitary glands from cadavers just to get enough to treat. So it was probably rare, expensive, difficult to find. And 
I don't know, was it regulated at that point in time? So, so the cadaver um, recovered, cadaver-induced um, mm-hmm. human growth hormone had its problems, both in terms of scarcity, as you pointed out, and potentially even as, as perhaps presenting some medical problems as well. There are those who claim to this very day that uh, Lyle Alzado, NFL, um, you know, Raider, uh, NFL football player, uh, that his um, brain cancer was in some way tied to the use of cadaver-derived um, human growth hormone. Uh, never know. Uh, nothing's been proven on that, but it certainly presented its problems. But But when you talked about Ben Johnson and sort of the the history of sports and performance drugs. Human growth hormone, to me, is the most fascinating drug in America. Uh, From a lawyer's perspective, looking at it in a legal way, um, it is the most regulated drug in the United States. And uh, the reasons why are interesting and fascinating and really speak to the way our laws get made in America and and sort of the focus on issues that sometimes don't really take into account science or in perhaps even common sense on occasion. So um so yeah, so the 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 story of human growth hormone begins somewhat contemporaneously with the story of the criminalization of anabolic steroids and the uh, putting them putting steroids into the same law that is the Controlled Substance Act that covers heroin and cocaine and methamphetamine and marijuana. So the the process by which human growth hormone became so regulated is in some way tied to that story. So and, they're almost linked at the hip, it sounds like. it's There's a giant bucket that's out there. Mm-hmm. We'll call it anabolic steroid bucket. And, mm-hmm. I mean, human growth hormone's a pepti- peptide. It's not even a steroid um, from a chemical right. perspective. Right. But I guess the thinking is, well, it helps people perform better. So it may not be chemically similar. It doesn't matter. We're still going to think about it in the same way. Is that is that how this evolution occurred? Sort of. That's how it started. So back in the 1980s, reports of the use of performance drugs in sports, the Olympics, and to some extent, professional sports and college sports came to the attention of the media and ultimately to Congress. Mm-hmm. And so a law was passed in I think it was either 88 or 89, there might have been two laws in those two years, uh, for the purposes of trying to crack down on this problem of the use of banned substances in sports. Mm-hmm. And so in 1989, Congress uh, held, held some hearings and ultimately decided that it would regulate steroids by making a law that basically said that steroids can only be prescribed and steroids would include testosterone, mm-hmm. uh, that steroids could only be prescribed for a for an authorized condition, 
for a disease or other medical condition and the use was authorized. Now, steroids had a whole lot of different authorized uses. And so the idea was to criminalize the distribution of steroids, testosterone, and other anabolic steroids so that uh, didn't make it a con- didn't make it a controlled substance, so it wasn't illegal to possess, but it was illegal to distribute under that law. Mm-hmm. So that happened in 1989, and then Congress decided, you know what? That's not enough. We've <laughs> really got to do more, right? They must have left something out, right? Well, they what they didn't what they left out was that the possessor of the steroid, the end user, so to mm-hmm. speak. The patient would be equal, would also be criminalized under a law that put steroids into the Controlled Substances Act. In other words, they, they wanted to up the ante. They wanted to not just criminalize the distributor of testosterone and steroids who's doing it unlawfully, um, but they wanted to actually make the possessor of unlawful uh, steroids also guilty of a federal crime. So let me make sure sure I've got that down for our listeners. Initially, it was an anabolic steroid act or law that... Trafficking act. A trafficking act. act. That's right. Got it. And then the ante was upped to put it into, certainly the end user, into the Controlled Substance Act, which has a much longer history associated with the drugs that most doctors are aware of, the scheduled compounds, schedule one, which have no medicinal use, then schedule two to five, that extremely regulated and overseen by the Drug Enforcement uh, Administration. Is that is that what happened? The anabolic that's, steroids? That's spot that, on. Okay. That's spot yeah. on. And um, the Anabolic Steroid Control Act of 1990 placed steroids into schedule three. The marijuana is in Schedule One and and remains there as having no medical value, no medicinal purposes currently. That I think is going to change at some point down the road. But yeah. uh, but steroids were put into Schedule Three, and so so that's what Congress was playing with in 1990. But there were those, and here's where here's the where the growth hormone component to this comes. There were those who were saying, well, wait a minute. Athletes are not just using anabolic steroids, they're using human growth hormone, and this is giving them an advantage in sports. So why don't we take human growth hormone and make that a controlled substance in Schedule 3, just like anabolic steroids? And there were advocates for that. Well, there were also those who thought that that was too much. And so Congress, in its hearings, heard from some pediatric endocrinologists who talked about how placing human growth hormone into the Controlled Substances Act would stigmatize short-statured children Mm -hmm. and really wasn't necessary in order to police sports. And plus, unlike anabolic steroids, which at that time were alleged to have some addictive potential. There was also reports of aggressive behavior, um, so-called roid rage that were alleged to be connected with the use of steroids in some select folks. 
So those didn't exist. Those problems didn't exist with human growth hormone. So Congress was persuaded not to use the Controlled Substances Act as the vehicle to crack down on human growth hormone. But they came up with this idea, well, why don't we just insert human growth hormone into that steroid trafficking act that we created last year, which didn't make it a controlled substance, but did make the trafficking of it, the distribution of it into a federal crime. And the concept then was to regulate it on a lesser level than the Controlled Substance Act, which, as you said, brought in the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, rather than the FDA as a regulator. It was to, to, to bring it to a lesser level of regulation than for the what was perceived as the more dangerous substance of anabolic steroids. So if a doctor is a prescriber of HGH, human growth hormone, would they be considered a distributor, a trafficker, if you will, if done in the ordinary practice of medicine? So um, I probably we'll get said to that better. Yeah, I probably yeah, said that and, and I'm going to answer that, in, in, and we'll talk a little bit about, because FDA is actually pronounced on that very point. Um, but, it, but I think we've now kind of made it clear that the intent was to to regulate growth hormone on a lesser level. And mm -hmm. so that law, that, that Anti-Trafficking Act, is in the law under the U.S. Code, the Title 21, Section 333E. And it basically makes the unlawful distribution of human growth hormone uh, punishable by imprisonment of up, of up to five years in prison, 10 years if it's to a person who's under 18, um, and for forfeiture purposes, uh, the conviction for growth hormone trafficking is considered a felony violation of the Controlled Substances Act for forfeiture purposes. Um, and the DEA was given the authority to go after these human growth hormone trafficking crimes, even though it was not a controlled substance. And that was the way that Congress sort of dealt with this issue of human growth hormone. And the irony is that unlike steroids, the authorized uses of human growth hormone are very, very limited. And so you have this restriction to only authorize uses, which does not include a lot of the potential uses of the drug. So In let's other talk words, about, yeah, yeah, let's talk about label and, yep. the labeling. So I'm going to take an educated guess. The labeling would be for uh, hypopituitarism or, or classic dwarfism, particularly in the pediatric population. Mm -hmm. And in adults, you know, there are those whose pituitary gland may have been radiated for any number of reasons, in particular cancer, and they may need to supplement just to get mm -hmm. back to baseline levels. And I don't know, was HIV included as an indication to just... Yes, ultimately it was. So yeah. you've got a few indications there as authorized uses, um, but you have a lot of other potential 
applications that are not included. Mm. And as we talked about a little bit in our last uh, discussion, it's common for doctors to prescribe different types of drugs uh, off-label, so to speak. Um, so for uses... I call it, yeah, I even call it silent label. Off-label yeah, almost has this negative, pejorative connotation. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, is that the reason it doesn't have a label is because no sponsor ever spent the cash to submit a data. <laughs> and Correct. They didn't do the made, studies for that application. Yeah, if there's money to be made um, and they need to do it and they don't, and the doctors otherwise wouldn't do it, then you can be, you can expect that there eventually will be a label. <laughs> so That's right. That's yeah, right. So silent label is a great term. I like that. And, um, and so, yeah, so, so that's common with all other drugs. But the FDA's position based on this, this statute, the way it was written by Congress, is that all prescribing of human growth hormone must be on label, must be mm. for an authorized use. And there can be no silent label applications of human growth hormone. So don't forget, this was this law went into effect back in, in 1990, and a lot's happened since then. And certainly there was a an explosion in the 90s of an area of medicine that, that some people refer to as anti-aging medicine or as age management medicine. And it's the idea, I think, of minimizing some of the negative effects that aging, the aging process can have on our bodies. Mm -hmm. And growth hormone uh, was looked at as playing a role in that sort of uh, medicine area. And so, uh, but obviously because of the wording of that statute, anti-aging is not within the parameters of an authorized use. Uh, there's also been some anecdotal reports and potentially some some studies as well, some uh, a little bit of research supporting the idea that human growth hormone may play a role in improving post-surgical recovery. Mm. So, for example, maybe from a a torn meniscus or a, a, a torn quadricep muscle, something like that, uh, that maybe human growth hormone might speed up the process, maybe for an athlete to get back on the field or maybe for a mailman to get to get back or, or you know, a letter carrier to get back to work. Um, and and if, if that science is there and, and it's positive, well, that would be wonderful. The problem is can't do it because it's not an authorized use. It hasn't been. So let been... me make sure, yeah, let me make sure I have that clear. Currently, um, a drug gets approved for use, and so the FDA allows it to be marketed for maybe a one specific indication. But it, over time, doctors may, be, may do additional studies, and there may be overwhelming data that it's useful for many different things. And the practice of medicine is typically not regulated by the Food and Drug Administration. It's regulated by the state. And as long as physicians conform to what is considered the standard of care, you can certainly pick up on the literature and start treating your own patients in this silent label or off-label way, meaning that you can follow the science and 
if the literature supports it and many of your colleagues are doing it, then it makes complete sense. In this unique situation, it seems that even if the literature does support use of human growth hormone for other indications, and even if the evidence is incontrovertible and there's great safety and efficacy data for other uses, I'll call it unauthorized uses, your hands are tied. You just can't do it unless and until the law or the regulation is changed. Have I got that right? You nailed it, Jeff. You nailed it. Uh, and if if physicians wanted to read a little bit more about that, there was a great law review article in the Washington University Journal of Law and Policy in back in 2008, and it's available online. You can easily download it. And the name of it was Bureaucrats versus Physicians. Have doctors been stripped of their power to determine the proper use of human growth hormone in treating adult disease? And it, it was published in, in the Washington uh, Journal of Law and Policy. Um, I was consulted uh, for that journal article and had a, a lot of input into it. And it, it really does ask the question of who should be in the driver's seat of what's best for a patient. As you, as you said, FDA uh, doesn't typically get involved in the practice of medicine and determining what, what doctors should be doing um, in terms of what's best for their patients. But in this particular area, with this one drug of all drugs, this is exactly what is happening. And in answer to your earlier question about what would constitute distribution, FDA was asked that question, and they published uh, a statement in response to that question, and, and the, you can find this online as well, where FDA's uh, public affairs specialist said, quote, you asked whether a licensed physician writing a prescription for HGH for an unauthorized use, but not actually physically providing the HGH drug to a patient would be a violation of 21 U.S. Code 333E. The agency interprets distribution as used in the statute to include the writing of a prescription. So there you have FDA's position, which basically says that a, that a doctor violates the law by writing a prescription for human growth hormone that is for something that is an unauthorized use. And unauthorized use, as we've said, might be uh, something like prescribing it for injury repair um, in a, in a post-surgical situation. So for these wellness clinics or anti-aging clinics that are showing pictures of people who in their 70s and 80s that look like they've hit the fountain of youth, I'm mm. taking an educated guess that some or many of them are advocating for perhaps even prescribing human growth hormone. Is the writing of the those prescriptions likely a violation? And from a practical perspective, the FDA just doesn't have the resources to, to um, I guess, crack down on that? Or is it considered still a gray zone? Arguably, you can make a case 
that potentially it's authorized. It, it sounds like it'd be a hard sell to say that in that capacity, it would be authorized, but that's why I'm turning to you. Right. The devil's in the details, Jeff. So uh, what constitutes adult onset growth hormone deficiency is open to some debate. Uh, and some of the age management physicians may see adult onset growth hormone deficiency as a um, uh, a more open term to allow for prescribing of growth hormone based on certain indications, whereas the FDA and the Department of Justice might say, well, not really, you know, just making yourself feel younger isn't what adult onset growth hormone deficiency really should be. So um, certainly, uh, as you said, FDA prioritizes um, based on its its limits of, of resources, uh, tends to target people who are being hurt when there's safety right. issues. And, and human growth hormone, as far as I can see, I, I haven't seen a lot of issues come up in terms of safety, although there have been critics through the years, uh, one very vocal critic of human growth hormone who has long advocated that we need even tougher penalties to stop the prescribing of human growth hormone. There was a, a article in the uh, in JAMA back in 2005 uh, titled "Provision or Distribution of Growth Hormone for Anti-Aging: Clinical and Legal Issues," and that's something that um, anybody in this area of age management might want to take a look at because uh, it really attacked um, GH replacement therapy for quote-unquote anti-aging, although it was a confusing piece that ultimately brought in some homeopathic and supplement products into the mix and to some degree shows how little some folks understand some of this stuff. Um, and there was an article back in 2006 uh, in, in a magazine called Brand Week that was entitled Bad Medicine, and quoted the, the JAMA commentary and reiterated that, quote, selling human growth hormone as an anti-aging drug is a federal crime. So there's, there's definitely a crackdown um, you know, on the concept of this, the use of, of human growth hormone for anything other than an authorized use. Um, I think the more interesting thing in, in the years that have, uh, as, as the years have gone since this law went into effect in 1990, uh, is, is really the, the tissue repair, the post-surgical recovery issues. Uh, I know that uh, Mark Cuban um, down in Texas uh, actually was involved in doing, supporting research for, I don't remember whether it was meniscus or ACL tears uh, in uh, NBA players and sponsored research to see whether athletes who have that sort of repair surgery come back quicker and are rehabilitated faster if they get human growth hormone than if they get a placebo. Um, and I think that research is still somewhat ongoing. There's still some more of that going. One of the problems is there really hasn't been 
a lot of research into that application because unlike other drugs where you can come up with a, a little bit of research and, and maybe support the, as you say, silent label prescribing for human growth hormone because of the statute, you'd have to go back to FDA and present all of the studies in order to get a, a new authorized use. And so far, that they just just hasn't happened. So let me ask about a middle road position. If you as a physician wanted to do a study and actually see whether there are other indications potentially as a prelude to petitioning the Food and Drug Administration, how would you go about doing this? Could you do it under cover of IRB and that would be adequate or would you need the permission in addition of the Food and Drug Administration to even do your clinical study? Uh, put it a different way, um, normally you wouldn't need to get permission from the Food and Drug Administration for an existing medication to do a clinical study. You'd probably just go to an institutional review board, say, right. we're doing some research, here's the consent form, here's the safety packet, and away we go, we'll publish a paper later. But here, do you have, would you need the permission of the FDA, and, and, and if so, would they even give it? Yeah, there's nothing specific that addresses that in the law. I, I think probably the way it would be more likely to start would be with the um, assistance and, and support of a particular pharmaceutical company. You know, mm. Big Pharma, if you really think about it, if, and it's a big if, and I'm, I'm staying within my lane as a lawyer and not getting in, into the medical issues right. uh, per se, but um, if there is value to this particular drug in recovery and mm -hmm. post-surgical rehabilitation, then not only is it potentially something that would be a game changer for folks who of all ages, and this is not just athletes, it would be anybody who suffers an injury, a knee, a, a, a broken hip, you know, a torn tricep, that you could come back quicker. This would be not only phenomenal for public health and patients th throughout the country, but it would be a huge, huge financial boon to the companies that make and manufacture and uh, human growth hormone products. So I, I think that I think big pharma has really missed the boat. Um, and and part of it, I think, is just fear of the stigma, because, again, the reason that that law was passed was not to stop the mail carrier from getting back to work sooner, nor was it really to stop the person who's 65 years old and, and looking to feel younger and, and you know, have some anti-aging benefits if, if, in fact, they do exist for this drug. It wasn't to stop that because back in 1990, there was no anti-aging medicine. The term didn't even exist. There was no age management. So the idea that some of the critics um, of human growth hormone for unauthorized uses claim, which is, well, if, you know, Congress didn't want age management medicine to include HGH or that Congress didn't intend for HGH to repair tissue. Well, that's, that's nonsense because those applications 
were never considered. HGH is regulated in the way it is purely because of its use in sports, purely because of fear of cheating in sports. And so, um, you know, I think we may have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, because the most the largest cohort of people who might be affected by this are not in sports. They are potentially <laughs> right. weekend warriors at best or people that um, just want to feel a little bit better as they get older. Not dissimilarly, when they can't see, they get a new lens in their right. eye. When they can't walk, they get a new hip um, and any number of mechanical devices. But somehow this has been singled out because it's a chemical and not a device. And it's a chemical with a history of um, <laughs> in athletics. It is the right. ultimate irony that a law that was put together probably <laughs> 30 years ago is frozen in time with its clinical indications. I don't know that any other, I don't know that physicians are burdened by that in any other domain, but I, I don't know that for a fact. It just seems yeah. as if physicians have more latitude and it doesn't seem like there's an interesting or easy way to um, to sidestep this. Well, let me ask from a chemical perspective, if there was a way to tinker with the, and I'm not a chemist, but let's assume you could change the chemistry of this so that it actually stimulated the growth hormone receptor, but it wasn't growth hormone. Would, would that tinkering or that camouflage change the, the outcome? Meaning that, is there a clever chemical way around this, or you'd still have to go through the very formal drug approval process. It would be lengthy, time-consuming, expensive, and it would probably be a lot easier for the existing pharmaceutical companies to just submit an application to expand the authorizations. Probably, probably. I mean, once once it's no longer human growth hormone, you're taking it out of that 333E statute that we've talked about, the growth hormone trafficking statute we've talked about. But mm -hmm. then you may potentially, I guess, you've created a an unapproved new drug which yeah. would have its own requirements. Um, also, I should mention that when the feds do something. Uh, sometimes the states now, state governments, state regulators, state legislators start to say, well, we should do something too. And that happened with human growth hormones. So uh, there have been states that have actually scheduled human growth hormone as a controlled substance, making its illegal distribution a felony and making its possession uh, in some cases, uh, a misdemeanor or a felony. And so um, there are a, a handful of states that have, through the years, added human growth hormone to their controlled substance list. Um, and so practitioners who may be interested in those areas can look at their own state law in addition to the application of the federal law. Rick, um, since nobody really wants to go to prison, but if you had to pick between state prison and federal prison on balance, you'd probably want to end up in federal prison. Is that, <laughs> is that a fair statement? Meaning that this, the state, burden, yeah. the state yeah. burden isn't helpful, meaning that um, 
would you rather have a punch in the nose or a punch in the stomach, right? I mean, you know, well, I've represented clients and I've represented many physicians on different problems that they've had through the years, whether it's medical licensing board problems or criminal justice problems, usually in this area of hormones. And um, I think generally the, the public understanding of of federal prisons as being a little bit more well no nothing is a country club frankly but less violent um, probably less yeah yeah Yeah. it's a little bit more white collar Uh, some of the particularly the federal camps um are typically tax cheats and and doctors who maybe over prescribed or accountants who got a little too creative um and so you've got a a mix you know but uh, and and state prisons are sometimes a little more hardcore and and you know less division between the harder core folks and the you know um more nonviolent folks but obviously nobody wants to go to prison Nobody wants to get a felony conviction. Nobody wants to be limited or have their license suspended um, to practice medicine or or anything else. And so, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I think it's important is that anybody who is involved in whether it's age management medicine or or orthopedics or any type of medicine where they're thinking about prescribing human growth hormone, they really do need to educate themselves on that particular statute and uh, kind of covering the the way that it got enacted, where it came from, like we did at the very beginning of this discussion, I think is important because it really does show that Congress's intent was really not to limit the prescribing of human growth hormone in those either of those two capacities that we talked about it was really to to prevent you know somebody in track and field or in some sort of olympic weightlifting from using it and getting an advantage over somebody else and um like you said it 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 really um has had an impact on a huge population that have absolutely nothing to do with the Olympics or any sport at all. This will be an interesting challenge for the Food and Drug Administration going forward. I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg, but there are a whole host of interesting compounds um, as well as um, high profile researchers that are trying to figure out, number one, can we expand the human lifespan beyond what is considered typical? And I think more importantly, even if we can't, can we allow people to live more active, fulfilling, healthier lives till their natural lifespan <laughs> expires in such a way that we don't have to babysit and take care of so many chronic illnesses? I mean, I, re- I was listening to one speaker the other day. His comment was that in that if we could just figure out how to slow down the broad aging process. And in his mind, he was talking about using rapamycin or rapalog um, mm-hmm. or there are other entities. But his broader point was that that way you're not playing whack-a-mole with all of these conditions related to cancer, uh, degenerative uh, disease, Alzheimer's, et cetera, that there may be common pathways. But right now, I don't know that the FDA has an easy pathway. It's it's 
it's a disease management pathway as opposed to a health promotion pathway. I think at some point there will need to be some creative minds that, you know, put this together, if, if nothing more, as a as a pilot study for the FDA to get involved. And I know they've gotten involved in the past with other unique things. So um, pretty close to where we live, there's a group called the Center for Regenerative Medicine, and it's an amazing center that grows organs from cell culture. So they wow. can grow um, bladders, and they use the they use three D printers and a collection of cell types to create bladders, to create blood vessels, and it's amazing. But as they were going through this, and ultimately they wanted to commercialize it, uh, the FDA didn't have an easy pathway to manage this. So collaboratively, this center, as well as other regenerative centers, went to the FDA and said, let's see if we can figure it out. So I, it is possible. I just don't know if it's going to happen you know, soon enough. Many things in D.C. don't move that rapidly. Yeah, and you know, from a more philosophical perspective, uh, I think FDA and maybe even Western medicine in general seems to be more disease focused and less wellness focused uh, traditionally anyway, and maybe that's starting to change and and I think COVID has if there's look, it's it's been horrific for so many families and so many right. people and but but if there's any positive, any minor, little, tiny silver lining in any of it, I think it's that it has, for many people, forced them to think more and take more responsibility for their own health choices, for their Mm -hmm. own health. You have people taking more supplements. You have people really, you know, owning their health and, and focusing on a preventive type of uh, approach. Nobody wants to get COVID. And so um, I I think that's a positive. And and I think if we continue in the direction of focusing not just on treating a disease, but but also maximizing our wellness, maximizing, as you said, our lifespan and, and our health span, you know, right. the staying, staying young, staying vibrant, feeling good in our 50s, 60s, 70s and beyond. Um, and if there's technologies to do that, then we should we should certainly explore them. Someone on the planet will do it. I hope it's us. But if it's not us, then I hope we're fast followers. Rick, how can people find you? I know that you're the guy that should be on speed dial for our users, that you're not the person that puts in the smoke. See, I'm, I'm a quick study. You're not the person that puts in the <laughs> yeah, smoke we, detectors. We had some laughs about that last yeah, time. Yep. No smoke detectors, but when there's a three-alarm fire, <laughs> there's one number you need to uh, dial, and that is you. So yeah. remind our listeners um, about that fire alarm. So, yeah. So if, if the house is on fire, yeah. either yes, I'm, I'm the fireman, I'm, yeah. I'm the fire person, I'm the firefighter. If um, if there's a uh, medical licensing issue, if there's a criminal investigation uh, or a subpoena or a warrant, uh, they can certainly doctors can reach me at five one six two nine four zero. 
0300. That's 516-294-0300. And if they want to read more about what I do and some information about steroid laws, steroidlaw.com, as you mentioned before, mm-hmm. is a great place and all my contact information is there as well. And um, certainly, as you said, I'm, I'm not the guy who's going to give advanced opinions on what people can do and where they can place their smoke detectors and fire alarms. But when when things get bad um, and, and there's a problem, certainly I'm here for all of your listeners. Rick, it's been an absolute joy, and I hope you come back and join us again. I know our work is not done. It is not, and thank you for having me. Always love chatting with you, Jeff, and um, look forward to uh, speaking with you on another occasion. Excellent. Before we end, do not forget to reach out to Larry Keller of Physician Financial Services for your disability insurance needs. He has been around for a while in many physician communities, helping them obtain the coverage they need. Find Larry at drpodcastnetwork.com slash Larry Keller. That's spelled L-A-R-R-Y-K-E-L-L-E-R. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N-E-P-O-N-F-R-A-N-K-O news at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups, and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.